Hey folks, football is well. And uh, well, I know what's not well right now, and that's in the world of SCOTUS, the Supreme Court. This past summer, the Supreme Court had higher education in its crosshairs between the dismantling of affirmative action in admissions and the blowing up of President Biden's plan for alleviating student loan debt. Higher education and our students, well, they got a one-two punch. Whenever I'm looking at higher ed legal issues and I need an ear and someone who knows a lot more than I do, well, I call on a couple people and one of them is Beth Devonshire. Beth is our guest today in this episode and I think you'll enjoy it. She's always a, a strong conversationalist. Beth is a lawyer and is currently the Associate General Legal Counsel at Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston. She's been around, well, a while. She wouldn't be angry at me for saying that. She has a wicked sense of humor, which is necessary when we need to bang our heads against a wall when it comes to issues around legal issues. But she does understand what it all means and what it all means for the future. She's also least likely to panic when it comes to legal rulings, even in times of head-on-fire decisions and moves. Today's show allows us to pick apart some of the moves that we should be considering in the wake of this SCOTUS decision, specifically around admissions. And uh, we had a good talk about the guidance uh, that has been delivered in the wake of the decision. And there are some opportunities there to do the work that we are committed to. Look, the decision by SCOTUS is not going anywhere. And the best advice I've gotten about working with legal counsel in general is this, just tell them where you want to get and have them use their expertise with the law to get you there. And so I hope you get something out of this show. I hope you're doing well. I hope your semester is off to a good start. And check the show notes and make sure that you get all the information from the show and learn a little bit about Beth. So it's you, you having a good start of your year? It's a start, yeah. I mean... <laughs> the start of school always brings new opportunities to learn, both professionally and personally as well. High you know, school sophomores it, are fun. You oh. have a, a, a high school student. I have a high school student. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but like I, I have all these ideas going into every academic year about how I'm going to conquer the start of the academic year. Yeah. Whether it be writing stuff down or having it planned and all that. And then the school year starts for the child. Like, right. I feel like the things I've done for me are well planned out. And then the child. Now, is- I'm going with that, uh, a free range philosophy. Uh, and you know how much technology and I love one another. Yes. Yes. I have been. When, loving- I, think te- Beth, when I think Beth Devonfire, I think technology. I've been locked out of my son's Blackboard account. Then probably he was in seventh grade and I have no idea how to get back in. So you know how you can like set it, you can get notifications if they're fit. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming he's doing fine. <laughs> I haven't got the notifications. <laughs> no, one, no one showed up at your house and walked on the door and said, hello. That's truant, the truants officer has not shown up at your house. <laughs> Every once in a while, I'll say, Jeff, Hey, show me your grades. And he does. Um, but other than that, I have no idea. I'm assuming he's doing his homework. I don't, whatever. So I, I'm taking that 
my type A personality, I'm trying to retire and not put on him. And it seems to be fine. Okay. Well, He's that's passing. That's good. You know what? Yeah, but, that's about all we can ask for. Yeah. That's all we can ask for. I, I want to thank you, Beth, for being a, you're one of our frequent flyers here on Office Hours with Dr. DeVos. So thank you for coming back and bringing your legal mind and your Happy free range be. parenting <laughs> to the show. One of the things that happened over the summer, there's a lot of higher ed things that happened over the uh-huh. summer. It's It felt like a big higher ed news summer. But obviously, probably the biggest issue or the biggest news was the SCOTUS decision specifically on affirmative action. And so we wanted to spend some time now that kind of the, not necessarily the dust has settled, but I think that now that we at least have the guidance where we're going with this. And so I want to ask you first about, I didn't ask, I didn't give you this as a prep, but I wanted to know what your thoughts were when, when the decision finally came down what was happening in your mind and what was kind of the words coming out of your mouth? I, I wasn't shocked. We all knew it was coming, right? Right. So even though both lower courts had affirmed what the schools had done, I, no one was shocked, right? At least at my institution, we had been planning for it since November. We didn't know how far it was going to go. We were hoping that it was going to stay with admission. And in some, or in like most respects, it did. Justice Thomas's concurrence gives a little kind of eyebrow raising, but none of us were surprised. So I think that's probably what came out of my mouth was no shit. Right? Right. Well, it's like the Dobbs decision. At least with the Dobbs decision, we got the, we got the leak when it came to the Dobbs decision. But the the this this we didn't need the leak with this one. We saw it coming pretty clear as day. Yeah, um, we saw it in the questions. We saw where it was coming. I will say I read this article the other day, or maybe it was something like a tweet or whatever we call them now because it's not tweets. Maybe yeah. X's. We're calling um, it tweet because <laughs> I refuse to call it X's. <laughs> uh, and it was like, what was Justice Jackson? Right. Yeah. What were, because her first year is like a review of her first year. And how difficult this decision, because you can see it in Sotomayor's writing. You can see it in her writing. I feel like she was holding back a little bit as somewhat the new kid on the block. But I also think in reading the decision, and this could just be my own, I'm seeing the decorum and kind of the civility that typically exists or existed within the justices starting to erode. Scalia and O'Connor used to kind of go at one another. Yeah, Scalia and Ginsburg used to go to the operas together. But this this one just felt different. This one felt a little bit more personal, especially toward in the decision that end where it really pokes at the dissenters. And we haven't yeah. seen that. And that one stood out yeah. to me. So that was one of the, oh, something's rotten in the state of Denmark type. Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll make sure I put it in the show notes, but there was, I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but Justice Jackson was the commencement speaker at Boston University's Law School graduation this year. Yeah. And in her her speech was excellent. And, and it, I think you, all of our listeners, listeners, please watch the speech. It was great. But to that point of 
I think one of the things that she brings, and I'm not a legal scholar, I am, I'm barely an observer of all of this, is that she brings a very different uh, legal kind of background in terms of what her history has been on the bench. And I think that it's long past due. It kind of reminds me of people who've only been researchers their entire lives and have never actually been out in the field. She brings that field experience to SCOTUS that I think is, is I think, valuable. But I agree with you is that some of the some of the 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 words on the page in terms of the dissent were, look, we're tired of your shenanigans and we're we're going to start calling it. And I'm I'm perfectly fine with that. I want to kind of talk a little bit about what SCOTUS actually said in this. And you can even pull from the guidance documents and all that. But what the media, as typical of the media, the media has kind of made this into the Cliff Notes version is it's it's race and and affirmative action, very narrow and in some ways very narrow and in other ways really broad, overly broad. I guess my question to you is what did they actually say versus what is out there in the media? And, and if our listeners are trying to determine What's what's the actual stuff that we need to be concentrating on? Yeah, and I think on the decision itself, and in, in this part in in the in Robert's decision, I think they were somewhat disingenuous that they they're like, oh, we're not throwing Gruder out the window. I'm like, yes, you are. You are. Yes, you are. Yeah. Absolutely, just upended twenty some years of legal precedent. And I think that's concerning that they're no longer adhering to precedent, right? We saw that with Dobbs. We're seeing it now. So there's no such thing as precedent anymore. I think that's concerning. But what the actual true meat of the order is, is you cannot use race, consider race in admission. And they really say they they focus on some parts, meaning a zero-sum game. Right. So they okay. say anytime that there's a yay for one is going to auto, especially when there's limited spaces, it's going to be a, a no for somebody else. So anytime that there's a zero sum game, you can't consider reason like that check the box format. And that's yeah. important because it, and you'll see it in Thomas's concurrence, because that leads to the financial aid that leads to the affinity programs that leads to all those others, which Title VI has already been pointing towards it. So yeah. and has said it. So I think it's important to remember that it truly is just race in admission. I think folks, that was one of the fears is that they were not going to just stick to the admissions practices. Mm-hmm. And then they kind of they really go after because yeah, and I'll dork out for a second, right? So you um, the reason that they joined. The Harvard case, Harvard is private. So right. Harvard doesn't have to pay attention to the Constitution, right? That's the right. 14th Amendment. Right. Harvard just has to pass, quote, Title VI. Whereas you have the public institution in UNC, they are beholden to both equal protection clause constitution under the 14th Amendment and Title VI. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is even throughout the whole decision, they just keep saying equal protection, equal protection, equal protection. 
Yep. When in actuality, that's not true because private institutions don't have to, quote, pass muster under the 14th. We just have to make sure that we're okay under Title VI. Okay. So that, at the end of the day, doesn't really matter. But I thought that that was interesting how they just conflated it and, yeah. and, and talked about it in general. Because I think that there was this kind of hope that, well, Publix, yes, of course, you have to have this higher threshold, right? Because you're you're public and, and you've got the the constitution that you're beholden to and you you're private, you you right. might not have been able to to squeak by a little bit more. And the court really shuts the door on that, which I'm not surprised about. I, right. I, I think we all knew where it was heading. But and we had already seen some of that pri- uh, public moves in places like Texas, Michigan, California, where right. we we've seen that. And so it it doesn't exactly surprise anybody from the UNC standpoint, but by bundling it up, it that's where it really mucked up the waters. Yeah, and it, for me, it, it was reminiscent of the first and it was a public rulemaking when it came down to Title IX because they kept saying due process, due process, due process, and rightfully so. The private institutions are like, hey, remember. Do pro- that due process thing that you're talking about doesn't actually apply to private institutions. That's you public thing over there. We, right. have, we have different things in which we need to adhere to. But please don't put this constitutional right on public institutions. And I think a couple of other things that came out of the decision, again, it truly is admission practices that are based on race. If you're using race in any way, shape or form as like a plus or a negative because that's part of it, too. You can't use stereotypes. You can't use positives and negatives. But then they give us a little bit of a door open, right? So first they say, hey, this is only to institutions, not military academies, because there right. might actually be this reason for diversity in your military academies. And right. then there's also this other piece of, but nothing is telling you that you can't ask certain essay questions in which you're asking about characteristics and, and using that, I'll actually quote it, at the same time as all parties agree, nothing in this opinion should be construed as prohibiting universities from considering an applicant's discussion of how race affected his or her life. I would say they probably should have said their life, be it through discrimination, inspiration, or other realize of benefit to a student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination or a benefit to a student whose heritage or culture motivated him or her to, or, or in there, to assume a leadership role or attain a particular goal must be tied to that student's unique ability, ability to contribute to the university. In other words, the student must be treated on his or her experiences theirs, as an individual, not on the basis of race. So, and actually the common up and other institutions have literally just taken that and said, explain. Explain. Right. So, and I think that there's a couple different points that we need to be wary of there mm-hmm. is that, okay, well, what exactly it does that mean? Right. Right. And we have to be very careful and train our admissions folks that we're not subconsciously putting race in, right? Because if you have a student of color who's saying all these things, how do you dissect that? So that's great that they allowed us to do so. And the other thing, and we have a legal intern who's in our office, and he's fantastic. And he had kind of brought up, and other folks have too, we also, from an equity lens, we have to be very careful about not wanting our students or our prospective students 
to kind of go down this tragic porn route. Right. Yep. Yep. Right. Like, tell us about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. And I think from an yeah. equity standpoint, we sometimes expect that more from our folks of color or marginalized populations yeah, yeah. than we do from, from others. And I don't think that that's a fair point either. Yep. So yep. I, that would be something that I would want us to be mindful. That's great that we're going to ask that question. And I heard something talk about some schools say, we kind of had that already. But this, the students would talk about how they didn't make their soccer team. Right. Yeah. And that's not really what we're trying to get to. So right. I think there's right. also that piece of working with your high school guidance counselors to really coach these. And again, at the end of the day, who has access to the guidance yeah. counselors or the folks right. who are helping right. you with the right. Well, and it, it's it's very much about access in terms of what's happening. I mean, we're talking about the college level with this conversation. Yeah, we know well, we, we know full well that. Kids go into certain high schools. If you're going to a Title I high school, you don't have access to AP classes necessarily. You yeah. probably don't have college advising. I'm teaching one of my graduate student classes right now as we're doing it. It's an enrollment class. It's an mm -hmm. enrollment retention class. And one of the first things I did in that class, and it's seminar style, so there's only 10 students and it's it, they're very chatty. I, you know me well enough. I love that it's chatty, right? Yes. And but I asked them all, I said, tell me your pathway to the institution you went to for undergrad. Well, how did you get there? And several students in the class were first generation and several students in the class, whether they be first generation or not, depending on where they went to high school, they didn't really realize that, that like what types of tiers of institutions were right. they? Like they literally were like said, well, everyone is applying to the state institution in my, in my state and the state colleges under not the flagship but like the state schools i guess that's it and they and they didn't even think or didn't get any kind of level of guidance and so that idea of like they're not getting that information and i think that that it's also very interesting this whole holistic enrollment or holistic admissions my my child's of an age that we're now starting to look at colleges we've done some tours every single school we do a holistic like okay well what does that look like some of the schools said flat out because of the type of of things she's interested in we don't require a portfolio because mm -hmm. we know schools high schools don't have mechanical drawing they don't have arts they don't have some of these things so right. we're not going to ding you for not having a portfolio that that's important so that that leans its way down into this idea of what is holistic what is that full picture of the student? What does that all look like? But going back to this decision and that idea of like training people and making sure you kind of set up admissions protocols and process that passes this sniff test that gets us away from the, as you called it, like the tragedy porn kind of essays and that sort of thing and what that looks like. And I, and, and I wonder how much admissions offices are asking the question, okay, rather than just focus on what we have to deal with now, should we be considering things like whether it be how we're recruiting students, where we're recruiting students, like, will we, we have to show certain, here's my biggest fear 
is that at some point it's going to be regulated. Show us where you're going to and how much time you're spending in certain neighborhoods and where you're going to which schools and all that. Like that's that's a fear of mine. And then the other thing that I fear is how we're awarding financial aid. So because yeah. we already know the financial aid thing is going to happen. So it's already happening. Yeah. Right. So tell us what we should be worried about with financial aid. And then let's talk about recruitment. Yeah, we and just a couple of points, if we can, I should have brought this up early and then we can go to the financial aid. One of the biggest pieces in, in, in Gruder, I think it's important, right? The whole decision is you can discriminate on race if there is a compelling state interest and it's narrowly drawn, right? That's how you kind of pass that strict scrutiny test. And for the 20 years prior, it was the compelling state interest was the benefits of diversity. And that narrowly tailored meant Harvard had like point one of a point, North Carolina, you you had that holistic kind of thing. What this decision does, and crudely, I think it basically says no to diversity. They kind of use this legalese and they're like, because you can't quantify, right? No one's showing me data about the benefits of, of being with somebody else, right? So in crude terms, they basically say diversity cannot be a compelling state interest which I think is important because I'm truly concerned about what that's going to happen on the Title VII in our workplace, right? So I just okay. wanted to make sure that we kind of got there. The other thing that you have to look at in admissions, to your point, is, okay, well, we're going to get rid of some of these criteria. But also part of that is, I think you were saying about a portfolio. Well, well, the decision doesn't say, let's look at or they don't really point to donor or legacy we see in the guidance documents that come out after that say why are you doing this right we actually see a lawsuit right, right now at harvard asking the right. exact same question and there was an article not too long ago saying okay so yes look at donor look at legacy i think the the daily did a really good article on like the pros and cons of both yep but also your, your, your overall student portfolio or the amount of extracurricular activities that you've been in, right? right? Because that, I think, speaks to privilege in class as well. So I think okay. there's opportunity to look at all of our admission practice and, and really take a, a look and say, well, what is holistic? When it comes to financial aid, I think that there is, well, it doesn't come out and say it. I think that if you are, your private scholarships have nothing to do with student applies and, and they can, you know, use that scholarship at your institution. I don't think that we're going there yet. Okay. However, I know many an institution that are looking and saying, why are we doing this? Right. And right. Harvard has basically said, and they've gone back to their donors, they're, they're looking at their endowment, their endowed restricted um, scholarships and saying, is this going to pass muster? At right. the end of the day, why are we doing this, right? In Title Seven, I mean, Title Nine gives you, in their regulations, it talks about trusts and it kind of points you to the pool and match in the actual Title Nine regs. And I think that that's where we're heading right. to financial right. aid. Because I think if you t- if you look at Thomas's language about that, or even to the, the decisions language about zero sum, money is finite. Right. So it is zero sum. And if I'm going to give to you, that means you don't get a sum. So therefore, it's zero sum. And I think that's the concern. So how can you then 
make sure that you're you're hitting your goals. I do think that what you can do, you can go back to your donors and see. And sometimes it's just a little language shift, right? Mm, it's, yeah. Okay, so maybe you had a scholarship that was to help promote students of color and X, Y, and Z. Well, is there something, you know, if you're inclusive excellence, a demonstrated commitment to inclusive excellence? Okay. Well, you're, are you not hitting the same goal that you wanted to, right? Because quite honestly, Justice Thomas want to get that scholarship because right. he, he doesn't believe in diversity in the first place. Right. So I think you have to go back and see and what kind of language is around it. Maybe move to a pool and match system like you're doing for your gender-based scholarships. And there just might be some scholarships that you make the determination, depending on how much risk you want to assume. And you just say, no, I can't accept this this donation with this criteria. Right. And you have to play with that. Now, as a general counsel at an institution, one of the things you and I have talked about in the past, and it's, I think, the way to engage the GC is, I want to get to this outcome. So how do I get to this outcome? Is there, is that a good way to approach these challenges right now? Yeah, because I still, I mean, an admission, right? There's still ways. And I think the guidance documents are really helpful, right? There's some fantastic language, especially in that first one. I think, I think that was, was the beginning of August. And they talk about, okay, well, maybe we switch our language from underrepresented to underserviced or, or underserved communities, right? And okay. even the guidance documents, it's, it's, I just pulled it up, August 14th, they talk about um, okay, geographic location. So what if instead of looking at this, I do think geographic location might be risky to your point. Are they going to look and and see? And I also think that there's a point with geographic. And, and I think we have to look and say, well, what is our goal here? Right? There's mm. lots of folks who say, okay, we're going to give these services. We recognize that these underserved urban areas, the students who come to us need additional assistance. Well, you know what? There's some underserved very rural areas where the students come to us with the same issues. Those just don't tend to be predominantly students of color. Those students mostly are white. So it's, if our goal, our overall goal is retention, our overall goal, I mean, I kind of, I'm somewhat nostalgic and I, I really believe President Johnson, when he said, when he created, you know, the higher ed act and, and the great society that you can't have a great society if you don't have an educated society. So right. shouldn't we ex- be extending that to all and with the ability to succeed? I mean, we look at where our population is, including Democrats. The vast majority of Democrats actually believe that this should have sunsetted. They don't. If you look right. at California, it was up. They could have done away right. with from they could have put it back in and they chose not to this past right. session. So I think it's important for us to recognize where the greater, where the majority of Americans are also seeing this. This is is somewhat actually bipartisan. This isn't, I think the the ways in which we might be a little bit different, but as far as has this kind of reached its point to Justice Kavanaugh, when does it end? There's no end point. 
So right. that's part of it. But there's other things that you can be doing as far. And again, I, I challenge you to go back to that August 14th letter about geographic location, low performing schools, schools with high dropout rates, free or reduced price lunch, although in Massachusetts now everybody gets a free lunch. Right. Low numbers of graduates being admitted to an institution. So I think that there's, and they actually use the language of you're pretty much with this criterion going to hit the same population that you want to hit. Right. You might even just expand your net a little bit more. Right. There's, there's also the, it's, it's almost as if you have to take a look at what your admissions criteria and goals are, and then almost do, I, I make an overlay. I'm, I'm of an age that I remember encyclopedias in my house and the part with the human body, even though I flunked biology and I will be the first one to say I flunked biology. I had to take earth science because I was not a good biology student. But when you, you pulled out the bio book, there was these pages where there was this acetate. So it was like, here's the body, here's another layer, here's the bones, here's the, here's the veins, here's the muscles, here's everything. And you build it up. And it's almost as if, as you're looking at your, your admission class and your goals, and you have to do an overlay every year and you have to say, all right, where are we pulling people in? Maybe it's, we need, I mean, I, I've been at institutions, you've been at institutions where you're like, we are absolutely out of whack when it comes to gender in this major. We need to be more intentional about getting out there and getting in more women or more men or whatever the case may be. And so it's it's applying things that we already do when it comes to other aspects of our admission profile. And I want I didn't ask you this in the prep, but I, I wonder this because a lot of universities and colleges have I don't even know what to call it, but like a, a f- affinity relationships with their city or locality. And a lot of those are focused on being a pathway for especially if they're an urban institution or an institution near an urban urban center, it tends to be a pathway. What do you think of those programs? Are those at risk or no? Those are fine. And I think okay. that you just have to be careful, right? Because even the recruitment with the guidance is, and again, the guidance could change depending upon your administration. But they're saying you can give more targeted recruitment and outreach to these areas. You 100% can you can have pipeline programs, right? That's what California's done. That's what Michigan's done. It, it's a huge investment. What you can't do is if your pipeline program uses race as entering in that pipeline program, you then can't give preference to the p- people in that pipeline program in your admission process. But if your pipeline program is like, hey, students of Boston, please come, right? right. And it's completely right. na- race neutral. Then absolutely, you can give preference to those pipeline people because that first kind of half step into your admission process was race neutral, right? Mm-hmm. And they're and they're saying even because everybody was worried about recruitment, they're saying go after it. Absolutely, you you want to target a certain population, you can flood that yep. area with recruitment with focal. You can do that because okay. everybody has an open opportunity to your actual admission. Recruitment is fine. And even it's it's helpful because in the guidance document, they talk about you can also do this with your yield, right? So the decision's been made. 
And, and they're, and they're very clear, like, please keep your data, right? Nothing yeah. in the, in the decision is saying you have to never look at the data again. You right. can still say that you have a commitment to diversity. How we're doing it is that through our outreach, through our recruitment, through this, through that, you could, in that guidance document, that first one really talks about how you can still do it and gives yeah. you the language to do it. But they're saying, okay, keep your data, right? So maybe the common app, you have no idea race or ethnicity, right? That box is gone. That's fine. You're still going to keep it on the back end because we still need it for our iPads to figure out yeah. what our population is. Right. But even when you're kind of not shaping your class or whatever, you can look back at it and say, you know what? We need to give more targeted outreach to this. We're not yeah. saying... We're going to take away the opportunities for those other folks who we just admitted. But the guidance documents are telling you, you can actually target those folks and encourage them to apply. Yep. yep. So there's nothing that, that prevents you from doing that as well. It truly is in that admission process. So, so I, I want to emphasize. Yeah, I want to emphasize what you just said. There's nothing in the guidance that says you cannot intentionally go out into spaces and recruit. Correct. The 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 where the guidance comes down is this idea of a checkbox around race Correct. on the application and and all that. So it's like you have to get out there and be out there. And I, I think at some point I'm where there's a couple other things. It's all inner. It's all connected, though. Right. So what we see is students, especially first generation students, the high cost of private education turns people off and they don't necessarily understand what the actual take home, what is discount rate? How is this going mm -hmm. to affect you? Fine. This, this, the, the reality is people who are truly Pell eligible, many universities, you're going to be taken care of people who are quite affluent you're going to be in a situation where maybe you're not even worried about financial aid, that 1% of the world. The problem is that that middle ground, which is the majority of people, and right. they're saying there's a real concern. But that being said, when we look at this going out and recruiting, in addition to this getting out there and being in front of people and going maybe into some schools that we haven't been to, and going into regions of the country we haven't been to, we also have to have conversations about what affordability looks like yep. and what all of this is and that that and and get rid of some of the the that that kind of mystique of what is higher education affordability and what does it look like. And and so it is from a holistic experience of this recruitment, it involves a lot of boxes to check. Some people have said this is going to be the the furthering the death knell of the of the SAT. What are what's your prediction? I think so, and I think in some regard, and actually, I was listening. I think it was to the Daily, and, and sometimes actually the SAT is beneficial for right. students of right. color. So right. I think that is an individual determination, right? If, and if you have really good SAT scores, even if it's optional, you're still going to put them in there. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. and, and, but I want to touch on that point that you were making before about getting out there. Yeah. Cause yeah, that's absolutely still allowed. And I think what we can do is hopefully learn from California and other states in which they pass no more race, considering race and admission. And what they notice just naturally and organically is students of color stopped applying. 
Yeah. Right, because it, they didn't understand what the decision is. So I think that that's yeah. an area in which we absolutely yeah. need to reaffirm the narrative that that's not what this means at all. As a matter of fact, many schools don't but and didn't consider race in the education yeah. process. Right. And the other part, when you were talking about aff- affordability, we know just from our data that the folks who graduate the most in, in debt are Black women. Yeah. So yep. we've got to figure out that, too, because I think that that's There's two populations that have the best graduation rate, Black women and veterans. <laughs> it's like, and, the other one, and, and Black women have the highest debt ratio. Yeah. So I think it's, it's if you're not, if you're looking through things in, in just really myopic admission and they are not looking at the financial aid. And again, you can still have... Sometimes just those shifts in the language. Um, We are giving this scholarship to people who show their commitment to gender equity or show their because it's not then based on your, quote, protected class. It's based Mm -hmm. on neutral elements. And I think folks right now are are just afraid to do that. And even the guidance documents, because everybody's like, well, what does this mean to affinity groups and everything? Folks, OCR has been telling us you can't have affinity groups. They right. have to be open to all. Right. If you look, they just reaffirm. Talk about that. affinity groups, what that means for people who might not be entirely on it. So affinity clubs and organizations. So in the guidance says, hey, we want to support you. Right. So we're bringing in this population for maybe students of color. Right. Yeah. So maybe we have a My Brother's Keeper or some other program yeah. on our campus. Right. Yeah. Because we want to provide certain advocacy. We want to provide certain outreach. OCR has been telling us there have already been decisions that say you can't do that. You can absolutely say that they can be based on a theme, right? We are here. Our core commitment is for this. But at the end of the day, it has to be open to all in mm-hmm. every sense. Yeah. And they've been, I mean, this is the Christian Legal Society, right? If you kind of in a different aspect, but they have already. So the quote is student affinity groups is a straight from the guidance may limit events to just its members only when the membership is open to all students. I think they give an example of the Italian Cultural Club, right, advertises that all students are welcome, but oh. only the first 50 will get food. Yeah, the only first 50 no, get should. lasagna. The rest of them have to. <laughs> right. You, you get like Domino's, right? That's right. So the word gets- you don't get good pizza. Okay. <laughs> and get- that's not a slap to my friends at Domino's. Maybe it is. But you're not getting the Neapolitan pizza. You're getting Domino's. Yeah. You're okay. getting Pizzeria Regina. Yeah. You're, no. getting, you're getting Domino's. So yeah. I think it's that same piece, right? You could absolutely. And there's some fantastic examples in the race uh, and school program guidance that was at the end of August. I encourage mm-hmm. institutions but this, in some regard, is not new. It's not. Right. And there have already been kind of eyebrows raised. And, and Scalia points to them in his concurrence, where he talks about graduation programs, rich programs, right? So kind of those pathway programs, which are only open to students yeah. of color. Your yeah. graduation, which is only open to students of color. Those you have to, you have to review, right? And, and the guidance is out there. In some schools might say, you know what, let's see what happens. Okay, if you are, you might not be incredibly risk averse 
You might have deep pockets. Your trustees say, let's see what happens. Let's let's get the OCR complaint. In the mid that we do, we're just going to stop. That's fine. Those are individual decisions. But there's some really good information right now that a complaint would be opened and that they might tell you to stop doing it. And those are different than the potential of a lawsuit, right? Which is a lot more costly than an OCR complaint. Yeah. Yep. One of the things that uh, you just talked about with bridge programs got me thinking because bridge programs, they're expensive to run. Mm -hmm. They're, and they, maybe about 15, 20 years ago, you could get a good grant to help with it, but you're not going to get that anymore because they, they're not sexy anymore. They're around. It's nothing new that sort of thing. But they're super expensive to run, even though we know that they're successful. They also require students to leave home, potentially, move on to campus for X amount of time. That means they're not working their summer job. They're not able to help their family, whatever the case may be. Um, I wonder, and this is just me kind of hoping, because I, I believe in these programs, but I also know that they're not exactly hitting on the cylinders that they were doing 20 right. years ago is that maybe now one way to look at this in a not necessarily in a positive way, but in a way that you're like, okay, well, knowing that this is the guidance, knowing that this is the requirement, how do we actually take this bridge program that we know we already have some infrastructure built, rework it and make it into something that is more expansive, something that really focuses on things. I mean, to your point, one of the things that we did at one of my previous institutions is that we we stopped using an AccuPlacer kind of test for math. And we yeah. just looked at high school grades. Our, our institutional research office said, you know what, if we look at their high school grades for math and the at the time we were still accepting SAT scores, we look at their math SAT, that's a better predictor than what is that's a that's a very accurate predictor than rather than having to go through the expense of a active place or test and making people have to go through one more test like as we're trying to get them in the door and i guess the reason i'm saying this is that sometimes when you're faced with a, a challenge like this is taking a look at all the tools the guidance that sort of thing and say maybe it's now time for us to go back to whoever helped us with the grant that got this thing going in the first place and how can we restructure this i don't know i I guess that's what's going through my head right now is this like okay how can we actually make all this work to actually advance our goals and i think we have to go back and see if it was working right oh yeah no absolutely yeah no i mean there's there's uh, come on like (laughs) when it comes to like are we actually getting done what we go what our goals were that's a whole other show that's a whole other show. Right. But we know that there's good data about these right. programs, right? We we know that their graduation rates, they're the but why? But why? Exactly. Why right. is it working? Yeah. Yeah. Why is it because they were here for a week and we did X, Y, and Z? Or is it because we actually know that if a student can develop one relationship with somebody, they're going to be more apt to graduate? If we they know are making an investment in their there's all sorts of predictors that have nothing to do with the bridge program yeah. that are we actually looking to those factors too, right? And right. If you live on campus and you're involved. If you're doing that, yeah. then, so I think it's, 
understand that. And, and I think we also have this post-COVID world. Yeah. Which, well, maybe we can give some of the same kind of outcomes or we can get some of those same outcomes. Well, it's it's tutoring. Okay, well, right. you know what? High school students right now, why don't have like one textbook? Everything right. else is online. Yeah. So, okay, well, maybe we need to change and we can figure that out. But I think at its core to just have, and I'll play devil's advocate for a bit, if we know that students, and let's stop calling it from, quote, underrepresented, because that right. can get that terminology, unless you actually define it, you might get yourself into trouble. But if you have underperforming or right. low performing, right. why wouldn't we want all of our students from low-performing high schools or areas to benefit from this program? Because the government, yeah, they care about the racial and gender breakdown, but we also care about just graduation rates and your ability to to move through your cohort. And that has nothing to do with any sort of racial or gender breakdown. Those retention rates, those graduation rates, that's what we should be also focusing on. And if we're... And I always look, what is it, by the year 2040, mm. we're actually going to be majority minority. So you know, right. we're going to flip. And then what happens at that point? Right. So I, I think we have got to look at the education that. goals and the outcomes. Yeah. And, and I appreciate you being a devil's advocate. I do think that some of it, when we look at underperforming students, that their, their institution of, of their K-12 uh, kind of trajectory absolutely sets them up. Yep. And we have to be more intentional about having those conversations and making sure that the people doing the services on our campus actually are well aware of and be be cultural ambassadors and understand where folks are coming from and what's going on and not making assumptions. And that that becomes the I think from a delivery of services in that regard if if you if you don't have a cultural competency in terms of the students that you have coming in each and every year and make no assumptions that the stu- it's like it, you get a deck of cards every year. That's your incoming class and what it actually looks like. You can't, you can't exchange cards. You can't turn anything in. You have to play that hand. And the goal is to make sure you can move that hand up to the next, to the next class here. The, the other thing that, that uh, this whole conversation got me thinking about was Early, I think it was in the fall of 2022, or no, maybe it's more like fall, fall of 2021 because it came kind of on the on the tail on on a response end of the the summer of George Floyd in 2020. Mm-hmm. Is that what well, we we came to find out is NACAC, who is the National Association of College Advisor, excuse me, Admissions Advisors, and <laughs> and that sort of thing. I, I always when they go NACAC, I always think of Aflac. But anyway, the there's, it's a, it's a very white field and the folks who go out into the schools and that sort of thing, it's not representative of what uh, they're trying to represent in terms of the broad uh, humanity that is, that is our country right now. And I wonder if any of this is going to maybe influence some hiring practices and in terms of people actually being interested in knowing that going out into these schools is a viable first entree into the profession of student student services, 
but also making sure that the schools are getting out there and getting into school districts that that need to hear from people front and center. One of the other things we came to find out during COVID is that when campuses had to pivot and get away from tours mm-hmm. uh, because of health things, the, the we saw an increase in diversity of candidates applying to get into schools because these things were all pushed online. How many schools have actually kept that online option for these tours? Some of them have, some of them haven't. They've kind of turned them, some of them have just turned them into a virtual tour and there's no human element to it. You can just watch it whenever you want. I think that's a mistake. I think you need, if you're going to do virtual tours, have a human on the other side of that, at least have an opportunity because for a student, whether it be because of lack of financial resources or and they can't access the campus, whether they be they may have a physical disability and like getting getting to city outside of their space is a, not only a huge a huge expense, but it's also I just need to make sure. But at least at the front end, I want to see this campus on my Zoom screen. And then I'll make that decision about whether or not I want to get up and go for an admission student day or whatever. But I, I think that there, that idea of getting the campus out in front of people and the viability of it needs to also be expanded beyond campus high school visits, which absolutely it needs to happen. But we need to say what was working, to your point earlier, what was working at various points when we were really getting a, a new kind of broader applicant pool and what can we make sure we're continuing to do that? Yeah, I think, unfortunately, we went back to business as usual. Yeah. I was reading an article this week about how higher ed has an issue because we've killed remote work. Yep. Right? We're one of the only industries that really have. And we know that our students actually don't mind meeting remotely. No. They actually, they, they, you talk to any, any advising office and any career services office, they, any good ones are keeping these remote opportunities happening because students want it. And it's cheaper, right? So if you're working at a school, then you don't have, you charge for parking. Well, then you're making, you're charging a student to come in to meet with you. Why? Right. And and we've kind of gone past the whole Zoom talk. We get it now. So I think that this is an opportunity for, I don't know. I mean, am I happy with that Supreme Court decision? No. No. Do I think that, do I, am I shocked? No. But I also, can we possibly just look at it, right? As an opportunity to maybe some of your points, maybe we just have to do better. We just have to do better. We yeah. we can't go back. I mean, how many times, whether it's in a meeting or, or someone else, it's, well, we've never done it that way. Yeah. Okay, please stop saying that. Please and you stop. know what? Because yeah. that's not helping us. And, yeah. and I think in higher ed, we have a tendency to be risk averse, to not try new things, to go mm-hmm. back to the way things have been because it's safe and it's comfortable. And decisions like this are taking away a little bit of that security blanket. And again, a lot of schools didn't use that security blanket. So I want to be clear on that. And 
OCR has already been telling us about affinity groups. Right. We've already kind of raised We've already them. gotten, yeah. We, we are so not good about taking the warnings and actually responding to them. We saw this with Title IX. Like Title IX, they kept telling us, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And right. we were like, well, we we're going to try to change right. it. We're going to do this and that. And that's what got us in the mess we're in. Okay, speaking of Title IX, because we're going to do like a whole other show on that later, but I said, I want your prediction because we were supposed to get the guy, we were supposed to get the new May. guidance. Uh, My prediction is what was it? May. You're thinking May? That well, long? We it up, right? We were supposed to get it in October. Yeah. So maybe, yeah. Actually, maybe we'll get it sometime in March. But what's the rush at that point? We're not going right. to make it second semester. We're not going to do those changes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I I actually my prediction is December fifteenth, <laughs> so it will ruin everyone's break. <laughs> yeah, and and then we can argue that it's. I'm hoping that it's not December. I really am. I'm hoping no. that they wait until the return of the semester. Because again, what's the yeah? What's the rush? Well, so, a little so bit here, of relief when they send it to OMB, but yeah. Well, I I have this to say to our listeners. I'm saying December 15th. Beth's saying March. We're going to use prices right rules. So <laughs> if it goes past that, you win. But whoever wins, has to take the, the loser has to take the other one out for dinner. That's, so. I will gladly take, well, I don't want your December 15th. I certainly don't want that to your point because it's Christmas and, and no one's there anyway, or it's the, the, after the, the same break. But we'll see. But I don't. Okay. I I often think that they are trying to untangle so yeah. uh yes, I agree with you. They're they're My, literally taking that it's like if if you've ever gone into your drawer and you have a bunch of gold chains in there or like all your chains <laughs> and they've all kind of found their way into this like disgusting ball, that's what you're dealing yeah. with. You're like your jewelry has turned itself into a ball. And it's and a complete yes, mess. Never. Well, Beth Devonshire. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say also, yes, it's a, it's a ball of knots. And I don't know how they're going to undo it. And I, the cynic in me also says the elections are playing into it as well. Yes. So there will be a decision as to when is the safest time to release these that won't also impact upcoming elections. But maybe if we get not just an indictment, maybe if we also get some sort of guilty verdict, then it frees things up a little bit more. But oh, what a bet. That's another story. <laughs> What's accountability anyway? And as the, the ethic or the attorney in me and the student conduct person at the root of, of who I am based in accountability, it is, it is nails on a chalkboard. Yeah. Well, I, I keep saying that it, I really wish that we could have just had a bunch of our top student conduct people deal with the July, to, to deal with the January 6th people and all of that, because we would have been done by now and it would yeah. have been, it would have been much better. Well, Beth Devonshire, you're always a pleasure to have. We will bring you back at other points. And so I want to thank you. Good luck with the semester ahead. All good stuff. And thanks for being here at Office Hours. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Well, that was great. 
Um, I'm still angry, but I feel like I can at least move forward. Um, I think there are paths for each institution, uh, but the decision is still terrible. Uh, the message that is being heard and felt by our undeserved, underserved and underrepresented students may very well be, uh, well, you're not welcome here, which that's completely unacceptable. Uh, my opinion, we need to be intentional about reaching out to communities and letting them know that they are welcome on our campus. Um, I remember a story uh, about when I was working at an institution, uh, specifically Babson College in uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts, and we hired uh, a wonderful person. She's since retired. Uh, Tony, if you're listening, we miss you, uh, or I miss you in the field. Um, but they hired Tony, this uh, woman, Tony, um, and uh, she was charged with uh, helping uh, to boost and jumpstart minority recruitment on campus. Bab uh, Babson had always touted itself as being a very diverse campus, um, but it was about international diversity, not about racial diversity. And uh, Tony did something that I thought was really innovative, and I still think it's innovative, even though it's a long time past. Um, instead of going to, say, college fairs at high schools, she went to neighborhoods and met with the let's just say the matriarchs that lived in those neighborhoods, whether it be grandmothers, aunties, etc. She found them in places that weren't the school gymnasium or auditorium or the community center. She found them in the places where they lived and worked and, and socialized. And she went into these spaces and talked about Babson. And by doing such, she was able to uh, find people in the community that the children trusted and that they looked up to. And uh, as such, then you kind of created a word of mouth, a relational kind of boost uh, to the community um, in terms of uh, their understanding of who Babson was and what the opportunities were for their kid. And throughout all of this, as I'm reflecting on um, on making sure our communities are accepting and seen as accepting, um, we need to actually get out from behind the table at the college fair and think about where we're recruiting from, not only where we're recruiting from in terms of localities, but where we're recruiting from within those localities and who we're reaching out to. And so... Uh, to my friend, Tony, you always uh, inspire me. Um, so thank you for being uh, an office hours with Dr. DeVoe listener. In order to grow our community, please rate, review, and share the podcast with your network. I would really appreciate it. And hey, don't forget the show notes. Uh, there you'll find out more information on our guests, today's show, and of course, details on how to follow me on social media and become a subscriber to my newsletter. Uh, thank you to my wonderful producer, David Yaz. Office Hours is a production of Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts. Okay, now get out there and learn something. <laughs>